You're listening to Take as Directed, a podcast on global health policy and the news, events, issues, and the people it affects. The problem is the world is in a shortage of vaccines. How to empower and strengthen women is the role that maternal child health and nutrition... ...is what drives this disease and and keeps it in the dark. I'm Steve Morrison, director of the Global Health Policy Center at the Center for Strategic and International Studies in Washington, D.C. In this podcast, you'll hear conversations led either by me or by my colleagues, Sarah Allender, Janet Fleischman, and Nellie Bristol, who serve as recurring hosts... We interview leaders fighting against some of the biggest public health challenges of our time. Since its inception in 2017, the Coalition for Epidemic Preparedness Innovations, or CEPI, has come to be seen as among the most promising innovations in global health security. It works to accelerate the development and introduction of new vaccines against known dangerous pathogens and to build common platforms for future development of vaccines. In this episode of Take As Directed, I sit down with Richard Hatchett, Chief Executive Officer at CEPI, to discuss the organization's origins following the West African Ebola outbreak in 2014-15 and its further evolution two years now into its mandate. Richard, thank you so much for being with us here at CSIS today. We're really honored. It's terrific you're able to come and visit with us and to have this conversation. So I thought it would be a good way to open by just asking you to talk a little bit about the arc of your career. How is it that you found yourself two and a half years ago joining to become the founding CEO of CEPI? How did you find yourself in that position? Sure. No, Steve, thanks. And thanks for inviting me onto the program. When I came to CEPI, I came actually from a 15-year career in U.S. government biodefense program. I had served immediately before going to CEPI for about five years as chief medical officer and deputy director at an organization called the Biomedical Advanced Research and Development Authority, or BARDA. And in my last role at BARDA, I was the acting director during the Zika epidemic. Prior to those roles, I had served in the White House in a number of capacities in both the Bush and the Obama administrations, and it helped coordinate the response to the pandemic in 2009. So you were in these leadership positions within the U.S. government in a period in which we were beginning to see many more episodes of dangerous and extreme outbreaks. And you were there. Tell us a bit more of what you were doing in the White House positions, but also at BARDA, for those who don't understand the critical role that that those institutions play. I had entered the federal government service, actually, right after September the 11th. I, I served as medical coordinator of, of the main triage area at Ground Zero, actually, as a, as a medical volunteer. Fairly dramatic. It was a, a very dramatic, and, of course, what happened very shortly after September the 11th were the anthrax attacks. Correct. Which really heightened the focus on biodefense threats here in the United States. The Department of Defense had had biodefense programs, medical countermeasure development programs, obviously, for decades. But the civilian programs really got ramped up very considerably after September the 11th. And then what we had seen over the last couple of decades, as you say, is a increasing incidence of global events, mostly with emerging diseases, obviously, not not with agents of bioterrorism, starting with SARS in 2003, the tremendous concern about avian influenza, H5N1, in 2005, 2006. In fact, my first Stent at the White House was in 2005 and 2006, helping write the National Strategy for Pandemic Influenza and its implementation plan. And then 
We had the pandemic in 2009. We had MERS a couple of years after that. Then we had the Ebola epidemic in West Africa and then Zika in 2016. I think that increasing pulse of these incidents is not at all an not artifact. An accident. Of, it's not an accident. It's not an artifact of you know closer observation or closer surveillance. These are real events. And I think they reflect the fact that I'm going to call it the global microbial ecology mm-hmm. is changing. Yes. And it's changing in a way that is increasing the risk for outbreaks, mm-hmm. disease emergence, and increasing the risk for epidemics, the propagation of those diseases. And what do you think drive what do you think's driving that? I think there are a number of trends, and these are long-term trends, right? I mean, it's increasing populations, right. the growth of megacities, increasing incursions into previously remote areas, climate change, and they're all coming together human to- Human and animal interface. Human and animal interface, industrial scale farming, mm-hmm. for example. And basically what it's doing is it's revving up the microbial ecosystem, as it were, in a way that's very analogous, I think, to climate change. And so what you're going to see are more events- and you're going to see more extreme events. And that's exactly what we're seeing. I don't think it's a coincidence that we've seen the two largest Ebola epidemics in history in the last five years. And it's not a coincidence where they've occurred. They've occurred in vulnerable societies that are perfectly configured to amplify these epidemics and to produce these large-scale outbreaks. So while we, you could say, okay, the Ebola, the first known case was 1976, We've had over two dozen cases in the lead up to 14, 15 in West Africa. Outbreaks. Outbreaks. And those outbreaks were ones that prior to the West Africa 2014 outbreaks, those were ones which were much more isolated. They tended to to burn themselves out after a period of time. Now we're in a different world. I think that's exactly right. The largest of those 24, 25 outbreaks, however many it was, was in Gulu. I think there were about 415 cases there was only one prior outbreak in a city that was in Kikwit. Yep. Exactly. And I think we had become actually a bit complacent about Ebola. I mean, it's not that transmissible, and we know how to contain it, and we had succeeded in containing it on more than 20 occasions previously. What we didn't anticipate was an outbreak like the West Africa outbreak, where suddenly you had three large outbreaks, uncontrolled outbreaks, in, in three capital cities simultaneously. Yes. And, and the world just didn't have the resources to use the old strategy. And so ultimately, we got that outbreak under control at tremendous cost to the societies and to the globe. But it took over a year and a half. And we didn't deploy medical countermeasures very effectively. We did deploy ZMAP, a couple of other therapeutic drugs. And we finally deployed vaccines towards the end of the outbreak. I think anybody looking at Ebola as a global health problem in 1978, 1988, 1998, 2008 would have said, you know, why do we need a vaccine? This is a disease that we can contain and control. I think looking at Ebola in 2018, 2019, we would never want to go back to a world where we didn't have a vaccine. Correct. I just want to add, I mean, I visited West Africa, Liberia, and Sierra Leone during the outbreak, and I also participated in the panel that Harvard and London School put together, that one of the six or seven retrospective panels. And both of those experiences really did leave me with a sense that something profoundly different had happened in that Mm -hmm. period and that the impact upon thinking was radical. And that gets us to CEPI, which you can trace its genesis directly to this outbreak. There were all of these different panels 
arrived at very similar conclusions around the, the need for a different approach to R&D and the like. So maybe we could shift and tell us a little bit around the genesis of the concept of CEPI. Sure. So, I mean, I think what happened in 2014, 2015, at least with respect to the vaccines, there had been vaccines that had been under development for more than a decade, financed almost exclusively, I think exclusively, by the U.S. biodefense programs. But they hadn't been in clinical trials. And nobody, because we didn't view a Ebola vaccine as part of the global health solution, nobody had thought about building capacity in countries at risk, and nobody was ready to deploy a vaccine into an austere environment and to test it in countries that didn't have any clinical trial capacity. And, and then, as you said, there were a number of reviews after Ebola looking at it, looking at all the factors that, you know, argue for the creation of an organization, a public sector organization like CEPI to finance the development of vaccines. And, and the arguments, I mean, we talked about, you know, the change in global microbial ecologies. That's one argument. You know, the world's heating up. Um, you know, in terms of infectious diseases. The disruption, the economic disruption caused by these emerging infectious diseases is extraordinary. Which fed the argument of pay now or pay later. Oh, absolutely. You know, in fact, the most careful estimate of the global social and economic burden of Ebola, I think this was just released last, last fall, estimated that the total cost to the world was about $53 billion. And, and that's, you know, for lives lost, for the response for the development of vaccines, for all the global screening that was done, and, and many other elements that contributed to that cost. That's more than $1.8 million a case. And the limited evidence that we have suggests that the, the cost to developed economies when you have big outbreaks of these diseases in developed economies is even higher. SARS, 2003, right. this is almost 20 years ago, the economic cost of SARS was estimated to be around 40 to $45 billion in an epidemic that had about 8,000 cases. That's $5 million a case. And in 2015, in South Korea, the MERS epidemic, which only caused 186 cases, was estimated to have cost South Korea about 10 to $13 billion. That's $50 million a case. And so the economic burden that these diseases cause was also a factor in CEPI's creation. There were two other factors, just really quickly to mention. One was the fact that there's, you know, very clearly a development gap. Market forces are not going to drive the development of products, the need for which is very episodic and very limited. And the other factor was that the cost of vaccine development, as you know, are extremely high. You know, estimates, you know, whether it's 500 million or a billion or more than a billion, they're really high. And with the possible exception of the United States, no other country can take this on by itself. And and so it's only by the pooling of resources, and that's what CEPI does, is it pools the contributions from a number of foundations and sovereign investors. Only by the pooling of resources can you concentrate the capital to make the kinds of investments that you need to make to successfully develop these so vaccines. So you're pooling, you're pooling resources, you're sharing risks, mm -hmm. and you're pulling in partners who wouldn't go it alone. That's exactly right. And, and, and in addition to the funding partners who wouldn't go it alone, we're, we're also reaching out to our multilateral partners who have responsibilities for different parts of what I'm going to call the vaccine life cycle. CEPI's responsibility is to fund the advanced development. Mm -hmm. But there are upstream partners doing basic research. There are downstream partners who need to be thinking about stockpiling and delivery and you know addressing the needs of the countries at risk. And we've all got to work together if the system is going to work. And that's CEPI, because all we do all day long is think about 
vaccine development against emerging infectious diseases, we're really well positioned to help those partners think about how they can contribute to this collective enterprise. So you started out with a mandate to work on MERS, NIPA, LASA, to begin working on more generic platforms. You're now also engaged on Rift Valley fever, chikungunya, and you're looking at disease X and Ebola. So in the two and a half years, your mandate and your range has expanded somewhat. Tell us a bit about, like, how do you operate? How do, when you're talking about uh, occupying in that space that's going to go from early trials up through a sort of phase two, what does that mean and how do you do this? Let me go back to CEPI's mission statement, mm-hmm. which, which actually has two components, and the, and the second component is as important as the first. Mm-hmm. CEPI's mission is to accelerate the development of vaccines against emerging infectious diseases and to ensure access to those vaccines for the populations that need them. And and so if if you think about the first part of that mission, we're essentially like a product development partnership. We are a funder, but we're not just a provider of funds. We, we also have built out an internal team of technical experts. Many of them are ex-industry. Uh, others come out of academic backgrounds you know, who have expertise in developing vaccines and addressing the science questions of vaccine development. And and those internal CEPI staff members provide a great deal of support to our development partners who tend to be small to mid-sized biotech Mm -hmm. firms. So we're providing funds, but we're also contributing expertise and helping with the problem solving. On the access side, to be able to deliver these vaccines during a public health emergency in countries, most of which have very limited capability or capacity either to conduct clinical trials or, or sometimes even to you know, effect an effective response, right. we have to work with those partners in advance of bringing them an investigational vaccine. So we want them to be familiar with the vaccines that are in the portfolio. We want to have developed clinical trial protocols. We want to have reviewed those protocols with their ethics and regulatory bodies, all of this ideally in advance so that if a big outbreak occurs and we have an opportunity to test the vaccines, to demonstrate whether they're effective, the countries are ready to rapidly receive the vaccines, rapidly stand up clinical trials, and then to conduct these trials as quickly as possible so that if the vaccines work, we can then begin to think about how can we use them to control the outbreak. So how you prepare the ground in that way, that's formidable. I mean, the science that you're looking at is formidable. Preparing the ground for delivery and use is also highly complicated. Well, it is. And and when I mentioned, you know, our partners and working with partners that have other responsibilities and equities for different parts of this life cycle, I don't think CEPI, you know, as a comparatively small, comparatively new organization would be able to do this by ourselves. It's it's only through these partnerships with organizations like Gavi, like UNICEF, WHO certainly – and uh, partnerships with the countries at risk that we're going to be able to do this. I'm very conscious as as the CEO of CEPI that my job is, one, to fund the vaccines and to pick good candidate vaccine products and to try to develop them, but it's also to create an ecosystem that is conducive to product development for these products. And I can't do that by myself. I have to do that, you know, with a coalition of willing partners. So you started when you were launched... In January of 17 at Davos, you had five original partners, as I recall. You now have a much broader pool of partners. Say a bit about who was there at the creation, and then how did you go about enlarging the pool of partners, and what was the 
rationale and argument that got them into the game? Well, the partners who sort of fomented CEPI, if, if you will, and who were involved in that early thought process of developing CEPI and deciding what it was going to be, the real leaders in that effort were a couple of foundations, well-known, the Wellcome Trust and, and the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, but also Norway, actually the government of India, mm-hmm. and the World Economic Forum. And they led the effort to pull in you know, to achieve buy-in from from global partners, global experts, and and to pull in funders. Our initial funding partners were Gates and Welcome, Norway, Germany, and Japan. Right, actually, and and since then we've been able to expand that pool of funders, mainly with with sovereign investors. The European Community has made a very substantial contribution to CEPI. Canada, Australia, Belgium have made contributions. Uh, India has set aside funds. Uh, We're calling it an aligned investment because it hasn't gone directly into the common pool, but they've created something in India called INDCEPI, I-N-D-CEPI, to support, you know, related efforts. So so we've we've really begun to – and Ethiopia actually has has, uh, made a commitment and we're working with them to figure out some hard currency issues, but – you know, that's not the usual not set of suspects. Yeah. yeah. I think that speaks to the fact that we all sort of live under the same microbial sky, you know, as mm-hmm. as, as it were. And, and this is a global risk. And all of these countries and all of our funders recognize that for us to be safe at home, we, we have to be safe everywhere. You know, that, that, that global health security is, is, a, is a collective problem. It's a transnational problem. And we need to tackle it as a you know, collectively if we're going to make progress. So you're about two and a half years. You're about halfway through your first five-year phase. You've uh, assembled pledges that exceed $750 million approximately. I, with what I'm calling the both the contributions to the common pool and the aligned funding, we're, we're at about $820 million. Okay, so you've got pretty substantial and significant commitments. You've enlarged your partnerships. You've got product development partnerships with 17, 18, 20 different entities? Well, we've got 24 vaccines in the portfolio at this point, and I think that's across 13 or 14 partnerships. Yes. So we have a couple of partners who are working on more than one vaccine. Yes. But yeah, we've got 13 or 14 partners. And so in the course of this, what surprised you the most in standing this up? It's very ambitious. It's been very fast moving. It's very complicated across geographies and across disease groups. Well, the biggest surprise has actually been a pleasant surprise, which, which is good. which which is good. Which is the global goodwill that we've encountered, both from funding partners, from our multilateral partners, and from you know the countries at greatest risk. When we've approached them and said we'd like to help you plan, and you know yes. we we recognize this might not be your most immediate health problem, but we're working on a disease that's relevant yeah. to your populations, and clearly everybody has an interest in. Everybody wants us to succeed. In terms of lessons learned, having worked on these kinds of issues in the U.S. government for 15 years, I wouldn't say that they're not really lessons learned. They're, they're lessons reconfirmed. The same kinds of challenges that the U.S. government programs faced and still face today, we're encountering. You know, I will say that the large pharmaceutical partners, uh, with a couple of exceptions, have been fairly wary about jumping in. Right. We're working, you know, with with partners who who are terrifically innovative, but most of them have not carried products all the way through development. They don't so, have the deep pockets and experience of phase three. 
Exactly. Exactly. And you had some hard knocks, right? I mean, some of the large global firms have exited or become very wary, as you say, with experiences around. There's a a long set of tales that companies can tell when they don't want to do something. And and there have been some recent experiences just with vaccine development in general uh, that have made large companies wary. I mean, the, the story with the dinghy vaccine. Yes. For example, the story with the malaria vaccine, some of the stories around the Zika vaccine development efforts. I I mean, it's easy to understand why those companies would be very thoughtful before launching a commitment. And the Ebola itself. I mean, the experience with the three experimental vaccines in Ebola proved to be a tough experience for many of those firms as well. Tell us a bit about why we should be thinking about trying to build a stronger relationship with the United States. What's, in your view... I mean, the United States has provided technical support. It's been there to echo the merits and value of CEPI coming in and and doing what it's doing as an innovative and very exciting new initiative. In your mind, what are you looking for in terms of of a relationship and a partnership into the future on the United States side? Well, I I mean, the, the U.S. has provided tremendous global leadership in this space for decades. Most of the U.S. efforts where medical countermeasures development has, right. has, has been concerned have actually focused on biodefense threats, so things right. that terrorists could use. Right. But in terms of building institutions, learning lessons, exploring different approaches, trying out different incentives, you know, most of that work has come from the U.S. So there's tremendous experience here. The U.S. has a long record of leadership, and the U.S. has tremendous technical capabilities and competencies. And so, uh, you know, to I, I would love to marry all of that capability up with the, the collective capabilities that our funding partners and our multilateral partners are bringing to the table. I think it'd be a much more powerful combination together than apart. I, I would say, and if the U.S. needs to rationalize its engagement, I, I think there are a number of reasons that I would point to. In the first place, uh, just very parochially, I, I would say that, you know, contributing to CEPI because of the diseases that we're working on, these are, you know, emerging epidemic diseases. They represent global health threats. So it and touches U.S. national interests. It, it touches U.S. national health security, national security, national economic security. Right. All of that would be enhanced by the world having countermeasures against these products. In the second place, I, I would think given CEPI's mission, the U.S. would have an interest in helping to shape our priorities and objectives. Right, and have those align closely with with our other priorities. Exactly. Practically speaking, just in the third place, I think having a formal relationship with CEPI will make the kinds of collaborations between you know, our multilateral partners and our funding partners and the U.S. capabilities and entities much easier. I think it could, could facilitate that. And finally, you know, the U.S. has long advocated, and, and not just where medical countermeasures are concerned, but in many different areas, has long advocated that its allies need to carry some of the weight. Correct. And CEPI represents an example where those allies have finally stepped up to the plate and said, yes, we're going to own this problem too. And And so I think Having the allies come together in this way, make substantial commitments to address a global problem and not to have the U.S. at the table is at least surprising. It seems to me there's there's two arguments that are important here. One is we've got the experience of the global funding, Gabby. The global funding, we were at the creation, but we used it in a very systematic way to leverage other donors to come in at a substantial. So we used our influence and our prestige 
very successfully, and it built very strong support within Congress around the logic of proceeding in this way. In the Gavi Alliance, the vaccine alliance, Gavi, we were a modest partner early on, and that was very important. And then we began to make a stepped-up commitment in the last several years because we recognized how important Gavi is and how important vaccines are. And that has made Gavi that much stronger and brought others in to support it. So that seems to be one very strong argument. A second one has to do with the sense that becoming a partner with CEPI doesn't take away from the value of our bilateral capacities, whether they are R&D at NIH or whether they are the work that you helped lead at BARDA. These are not either or zero-sum investments. Maybe you could say a bit about that, because I think that is very important that we understand that this is not a zero-sum option. This is something that has a multiplier impact. Yeah, no, exactly. I, I've talked about you know reaching out to the funding partners as these multilateral partners that CEPI already has. You know, they're force multipliers for us. And I think the opportunity with, you know, there are different ways that the U.S. and CEPI can engage. I mean, I mean, one opportunity is to take products that might be developed, you know, by early stage research at, at the Department of Defense or at NIH, and CEPI becomes a transition partner and and a funder to push those products right. forward. You know, another way that we could interact certainly would be to coordinate funding. You know, CEPI's working on vaccines, but the the diseases that we're working on would also benefit from having therapeutics or monoclonal antibodies. Right. And so if the U.S. doesn't have to take on developing a MERS vaccine and can focus its effort on a MERS therapeutic, yes, the world collectively is that much better off. So the way you put it is is perfect. This is not a competition, not a zero-sum game. This is about covering a, a vast mission space and working closely together to bring resources and institutions and partners together to cover as much of that space as we can with the resources that we've got. Thank you. I do want to speak briefly about the Ebola outbreak in DRC, which is you know, now been going on officially almost one full year, unofficially well over a year, still not controlled, still in a very dangerous position. Lots of deep security problems, community resistance, lots of operational obstacles to being able to do the key public health interventions. But we do have a vaccine, an experimental vaccine, the Merck vaccine. Over 150,000 uh, doses have been administered, proving to be terribly important. Tell us a bit in your view, what is it about this outbreak which is so exemplary about the bigger problem of the world that we live in today that we're going to continue to face? I don't believe this outbreak is some outlier. I think this is more a face of the future. And I wanted to ask you to say a bit about how exemplary is what we're seeing in, in DRC today? Well, I think I said earlier that it was not a coincidence that the two largest Ebola epidemics in history have been in the last five years, and it's not a coincidence where they have occurred. The situation in eastern DRC is extraordinarily complicated. I mean, you have militias, you know, that sort of are, are just occupying parts of eastern DRC from Uganda, from Rwanda dating all the way back to the genocide in, in the immediate post-genocide period. You've got, you know, smuggling of, you know, tin and tungsten and tantalum and gold out of eastern DRC. You've got isolated communities. You know, the national government doesn't have full control in that area. You've got political rivalries. You've got a very weak public health infrastructure. So you've got a set of social causes that give an opportunity to an emerging pathogen 
to propagate itself. And the pathogens have a Darwinian imperative to, you know, find environments where they can spread. And and so what, what has happened in eastern DRC, just like it happened in West Africa in 2014-2015, is, you know, the microbe, which keeps pulsing us and t- testing our defenses, did it 24 times before West Africa, has now found another environment where it can explode. Flourish. And I have taken to distinguishing between outbreaks, which are driven by principally by biological factors, and epidemics, which are driven, in my mind, principally by social factors. And epidemics tend to be markers of social injustice, inequity, you know, impoverishment, lack of entitlements. And so what you see where these epidemics emerge, and which I think is so strongly exemplified by what's happening in Eastern DRC, that epidemics are not just, you know, health problems. They are, as you were saying- Crises that have deep roots. They're crises that have deep roots. They're health problems. They're social problems. In this case, it's a security problem. And unless we begin to think about epidemics and, you know, take it out of a health context and think about it as, you know, a, a transnational problem, in many ways, you know, similar to international terrorism, similar to climate change, similar- to other transnational problems that we face and that require multi-sectoral responses, we're really not going to position ourselves to address these threats very effectively in the future. Thank you. Just one last quick question. As you think about the future of CEPI and you think about this world that we live in, what gives you the greatest hope? I take tremendous hope from the advances in the biological sciences. You know, the 21st century is going to be the century of biology. I think if we are willing and able to recognize the problem that we face, this changed ecology, the fact that this is an enduring problem, the fact that it is a problem that is characteristic of the time in which we live, and we can muster the political will and the resources you know, required to address this problem, we have the scientific capabilities, we have the ingenuity to actually solve the problem and to actually eliminate epidemics as a threat to humanity in much the same way that we've eliminated other kinds of threats. Famines no longer occur except where there are strong political causes or or warfare that prevents the delivery of care. So famines have been eliminated as a threat to humanity after millennia. And I think we're on the cusp of being able to eliminate epidemics as a threat to humanity if we choose to do so. That's very powerful and very inspiring. Thank you so much for being with us, Richard. Thanks, Steve. It's a pleasure. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Take As Directed, featuring Richard Hatchett, Chief Executive Officer of CEPI, the Coalition for Epidemic Preparedness Innovations. For more discussions on global health issues, check out AIDS 2020, a CSIS podcast that features in-depth conversations with leaders like Representative Barbara Lee, and fashion designer Kenneth Cole, who are taking on the continuing fight against HIV. Listen and subscribe as we count down to next year's AIDS 2020 conference, which returns to the Bay Area after 30 years.